You're listening to The Real Island Life Show, Episode 5. So friends, in your opinion, what makes a good story? In my opinion, you need to have some interesting characters, and these characters need to be up to something, right? Some kind of quest or big goal that they're trying to reach. Of course, there needs to be some hurdles along the way, slowing down their progress and asking them to step up their game. Hashtag, you can do it, right? But most importantly, I think that a good story has to be born out of an amazing storyteller. The kind of person that knows exactly what to say and how to say it to captivate your attention. In today's episode, we get to hear from the amazing journalist and video producer, Jessica Mulit, who's become a master at storytelling and will share with us all of her best tips to create impactful stories and use our voices for good. She's interviewed some big-time stars like Yara Shahidi, but also uses her voice for causes that are so important, like climate change or racial inequalities. And most importantly, Jessica is going to provide us with a different narrative on Haiti, her native island, so that we can start seeing this country from another perspective beyond the cliches of poverty, corruption, and violence. I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode and to know what you think about it. Let's dive right into it. You're listening to The Real Island Life Show, where we believe that life in the islands is about much more than just drinking coconut water and hanging out at the beach. I'm your host, Flo Chiriaf, also known as The Global Island Girl, and I'm going to help you discover the true power of the island life. Entrepreneurs, innovators, change makers, our islands are full of talent and possibilities that reach far beyond the common narrative. So. It's time for you to hear the stories of success, struggle, and adventures from my amazing guests who come from some of the most unique islands around the world. Are you ready to experience the real island life? Let's dive in. Hello and welcome back everyone. Uh, I am so excited for today's show because we have a very special guest who I've admired for many years, and she nicely accepted my invitation today. (sighs) Where do I even begin? So, Jessica Mulit is our guest today, and she's a video producer at The Root, which is an Afrocentric progressive online magazine that's been around for more than a decade. And her journalism has appeared in many different platforms around the U.S., such as, listen up, the Columbia Journalism Review, no big deal, uh, Splinter News, Fusion TV, Rise Up, Global Post, Neon Tommy, and many others that I don't have time to mention. So Jessica's work mainly focuses on marginalized communities, diversity, inclusion, and social media. And ever since meeting her back in college, and I'll tell you more about that, I've admired her confidence and capacity to speak up about issues that truly matter, which we get to talk about today. And during her free time, Jessica, you can find her teaching spin classes, which I think is amazing. I love when she posts about them on IG stories and also blogging with her sisters at Daily Elements. So without further ado, uh, Jessica, welcome. Hey. (laughs) Well, first of all, we need to tell them where you're from, like who you are representing today, because every guest is representing an island. So whose flag are you repping today? I'm repping the Haitian flag, the red and blue. (laughs) Yes. And what a good timing, too, because yesterday was a special celebration for you guys, right? It was a Haitian flag day. So that's always a good time. Like, it makes me remember being, like, in middle school and in high school where um, the area that I lived had a lot of, like, Haitian students. So it was a day where you didn't have to wear uniforms to school and middle school, so everyone would, would come with you know, their bandanas hanging behind their, the backs of their pants. So it definitely like brought back a lot of memories. That's amazing. But it's not your guys' Independence Day. No, no, that's on January 1st. So in 1804, um, that's when (laughs) Haiti became um, the first democratically ruled um, Black nation, sovereign nation. So I love being able to like be Haitian and Haitian American because even when things aren't going so great now or whenever I, you know, feel overwhelmed, it's like I can stop and think like, well, you know, slight work in comparison to like what you're doing 
and what people in the past, like my ancestors had to do. And knowing that I come from such a legacy of strong people, like that definitely keeps me motivated today. Yes, that's amazing. And I love that you guys just like created several days during the year to celebrate. Like, you don't, why, why only have one Independence Day when you can have several days to celebrate your flag and all of that? I love that. <laughs> so um, I think we need to speak Creole at some point during the interview, but we're good. We're going to get to it. Um, so Jessica, can you give us a quick glimpse into your early life journey from young Jessica growing up in Miami, I believe, and then Jessica as we know her today? <laughs> so, um, born and raised in Miami, the 305, and, um, my parents, like, are just, like, really nice, super Haitian individuals, <laughs> so by that I mean, You know, they, they constantly strive for like that immigrant excellence and making sure that school was first. And there was like this one meme that I saw, this was like years ago, but it cracked me up where they saw that like Haitian kids only knew three L's growing up. And it was l'église, la caille, l'école. And if you translate that, l'église is church, uh, l'école is school, and la caille is home. So that was literally <laughs> all of my childhood. Because it was like sleepover, sleepover for what? You have a house. You know, like all of, all of these things where... It's like, oh, my friends get to do it. And they're like, oh, that's great for your friends, not for you. Um, so my parents were very, like, strict, but also, like, they, they just wanted, like, the best for us, and they expected excellence. So, you know, during the weekdays growing up, my sisters and I couldn't watch TV on the weekdays. And I remember when That's So Raven started in fifth grade, I lied for, like, the first, like, two months of the show being out just because people talk about the episodes. And I was like, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, I hadn't watched that episode because, It was in a weekend. <laughs> um, but I, I always knew that I was interested in journalism and like speaking up and having a voice. And the only time we could watch TV um, during the weekdays was like to watch the news. So like my grandma and my, my parents would watch um, in Miami, we we're like an ABC household. So it's like we'd watch like the ABC local news affiliate. And then at 6.30, like it would be World News Night with Peter Jennings. So that, that lets you know how like old this was. Um, so it's like we were allowed to like watch the news and being able to like access all that information and see some people who looked like me, most of the reporters didn't, but everyone was able to travel and tell such important things and the stories I was like, I want to do this. <laughs> so the, the love for media was definitely instilled in me from a really young age. So Um, that being said, you know, you grow up, you go to high school, then college, and um, before we, we met each other. <laughs> um, so even though uh, Hamilton didn't necessarily have, like, a very concentrated, like, media communications program, um, I was a communication and women's studies double major, and that's where my love of, like, focusing on marginalized communities and reporting those stories really developed. And after Hamilton, I went to USC in Los Angeles to get my master's in journalism. And that's really where I was able to, you know, start to actually live out the dream that I had always imagined for myself as a child. Um, after graduation, I moved back to Miami. So uh, ironically speaking, of Haitian flag day. So graduation from USC was May 15th, 2015. And then I started at Fusion, which was... Um, at the time in ABC and Univision, like, cable channel. So imagine, like, the millennial CNN for, you know, an increasingly brown America. That was, like, the, the, the hopes of fusion. Um, and I started there in May 18th, 2015. So Haitian Flag Day <laughs> um, a couple years back. Wow. And while, yeah, so while at fusion, you know, I definitely had the ability to, like, it was it was a new company, so I could do a lot, which was, saying a lot which was wonderful so um you know I got different promotions one of the things that will always um stick with me was the fact I was able to go to the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention and that was in 2016 so I was I want to say like 24 at the time so the the ability to like be in these spaces um not just as like a black person and a black woman but like as a Haitian American woman And the the access that I was able to have really, like, meant a lot for me, especially because, you know, um, I think it was, oh, yeah, in 2018, when Donald Trump was, like, talking about, like, shithole countries, and, you know, Haiti was uh, listed um, among that rank, 
um, it, it's very interesting to see how even just like a very small island in the Caribbean, there are it like echoes and how because of that, it's like I want to carry that like pride of like, yeah, you know, I'm doing things that I think are important and I view as excellent. And that is very much a credit due to the fact that I'm Haitian and not um, an exception to the rule kind of thing. And I think that's something that's a common um, thread, especially about Haiti. Like there's so many like negative stereotypes associated with it and we can definitely get into that. But um, but I'm, I'm like super proud to, to be Haitian. And it, it wasn't like that all forever. Um, it took a lot of, you know, me deciding that if you can't make a joke about where my family's from, or if I don't respond to it, then it doesn't hurt me kind of thing. Like I'm rubber, you're glue. <laughs> um, mm. And then I was at Fusion um, for three and a half years. And then I moved to New York and now I'm with the roots. And that's, and that's like my very long bio. <laughs> Yes, so good. Ooh, there's so much I want to talk about from what you described. Huh, where do we go from here? Um, I guess one thing that you said was uh, the the fact that the only access to TV that you had was that like journalism aspect. And that's where you, can you take us more through the process of like the, the, the moment where you were like, ooh, like that's what I want to do. Like, was there a particular shift that occurred where you like convinced that this was going to be your path? Mm, that is a good question. I think that I honestly, I, I can't even like pinpoint something. It was just like being like, no lie, like five, six years old watching this where I was like, this is, this is incredible. Like the person at like the anchor desk and their ability to, you know, have they just they just seem so knowledgeable to me and in my mind I was like I'm smart I could do this <laughs> um yeah and um like honestly it was just the the ability to communicate was like the most important thing so in elementary school like <laughs> when they had like the morning announcements like my older sisters would did the morning announcements so I at like a very young age went to like the librarian who was in charge of it. And I was like, I want to do this. So <laughs> any sort of way where I could, you know, have a voice, I would do that like in school. So that was definitely like elementary school. Well, by the time I got to high school, I was like, I'm going to join, you know, speech and debate. I'm going to be in newspaper. I'm going to be in TV production. I'm going to take those classes. Like I, I knew where my interests were. And even if it wasn't specifically, you know, tailored to it, I was like, I'm going to make this work for me. And in college, it was, you know, majoring in the closest thing that I could that reflected journalism, but then still, you know, writing for The Spectator, which was the campus paper, and being, using other skills that might not necessarily be 100% of a match, but the importance of being able to speak well, the importance of being able to write well, and having those things shift into a career-related experience with an internship. So all of those things are just like kind of patches in the quilt work of what got me to this point where all of those interests eventually grew to be like Jessica the journalist today. <laughs> yeah, so good. Hmm, I think there's a lot to to learn about that. But before we dive into it, I'm curious, like, a common theme that I see with you is this capacity to speak up and use your voice. And actually, I'm going to reveal to you a little secret, but I remember in college. So to give a little bit of background to our listeners, um, I was a freshman when Jessica was a senior in our university at Hamilton College. And I remember there was a student assembly and there was some kind of drama going on. You know, like there is always on campuses, just like something where like all the people of color on the campus like showed up to the student assembly and I just remember you like using your voice in that space and I was like my little freshman self I just got here <laughs> just got here like there's like barely 20% of us of color and I'm just like oh my god what am I doing here it's cold anyways we're not gonna get into the Hamilton winters but I just remember the image and the moment, like seeing you speak up in that space and all the eyes on you and the amount of, of confidence and 
energy and assurance that was in your voice and that's that was such a key moment for me in like like reassuring me like you're gonna be okay like look at this girl like she is killing it she's using her voice and she's like so powerful like as a first year like just keep surrounding yourself by people like that and you're gonna be set and really like that's what I did like surrounding myself with a lot of women of color that were supportive and that's something that I really um loved about the Hamilton communities that even though like there was plenty of problems on campus but I just loved the the amount of sisterhood and brotherhood and just like fraternity that there was among us immigrants or just like people from marginalized group how we were able to really support each other and the reason I'm sharing that with you is that I'm not sure that you know like the impact that you had on me and many others I'm sure by just the power of using your voice and also being there for us, just even like by acknowledging us on campus, like saying hi or like smiling, like these little things transform. And the reason why I share it also is because earlier this week I was talking with uh, someone that I consider as my little sister who's on campus graduating in like a week. And she was telling me that basically I, I did that for her. And I was like, look at this, like, it's just like a cycle that keeps on going. And I shared with her, like, oh my God, like I'm about to interview Jessica. And Jessica was basically that for me, along with many other women on campus. And I just think it's so powerful. And I just want to say thank you, first of all. And then um, can you tell us more about like, why, like, how are you able to use your voice in such a powerful way? No, I, I, I have like can't even tell but I have so like the goosebumps on my arm are so real so thank you it's I think you you hit on it perfectly the the fact that someone else did the work and someone else was there to be a lend like someone to look up to and someone to listen to and someone to not necessarily even aspire to be but you see the way in which like they navigate certain spaces and think like you know that is really commendable and I want to also be able to to live my life and live my truth in that same way so mm-hmm. you're like breaking the heart over here in the best way um, <laughs> but I think <laughs> but I really think that what what I think matters is like the I think college for one thing very much taught me to be unapologetically myself and in that stance, it's like all of the ways in which like my life intersects at like a particular point where it's like, you know, sexuality as that pertains to immigration status, as that applies to race, as that applies to ability, as it applies to socioeconomic class. Like there are so many ways where we are, we all tell a very unique story. Um, but at the same time, like that we were able to have someone to like someone else can see themselves in us through our experiences and in places where we are like the minority whether that's by race whether that's by gender or you know political affiliation I think that being able to be bold not only helps someone else who might not necessarily have the confidence to speak up but I think that that kind of shifts the narrative where even if someone does not change how their views are on a particular topic, which is fine because, you know, America, you can do whatever you want. Um, Mm -hmm. I think by speaking up in and of itself, that goes to show that, you know, not everyone here thinks the exact same way. And when power dynamics are very much in play, like it's, it's scary. Like I, it's like, when you say that, it definitely brought me back where I'm like, Oh yeah, that was like, you know, the, student assembly thing where it's just like I'm offended by this thing that happened on campus and here is why and here's how we can work toward a solution because like I'm not going to live and function in a space where I don't feel safe Um, and I think that a lot of times it also is just a matter of because I I love to talk (laughs) Um, but but I think that sometimes it's like a, a matter of like remaining silent until you can formulate the exact words that you want to say so I really want to and I think I I do this like try to work on being intentional in terms of like the words that I do use when I decide to speak up and there's like a quote that I I heard once where it said only speak up if what you have to say is more beautiful than the silence and that 
mm-hmm. has really changed how I seek to communicate because if what I'm going to say is just, um, you know, critical without um, putting forth solutions or if it's just negative without pointing out, um, you know, the potential for change, like those, those spaces do exist where you can just say something negative and complain and do these things. But especially in a place like Hamilton where the there's already a preconceived notion of how it is based on how you look, how you'll speak, what your viewpoints are. So I always want to make sure that, you know, you can see me how you want, but I'm going to always, you know, exceed your expectations. Like I'm always going to be more than you think. And I think a lot of that ends up coming from, you know, being able to be very pensive and reflective in a way where um, I think that if, if I were, and granted, like, I do have privilege in other ways as, like, a straight person, so I might not necessarily think about how, you know, sexuality plays into certain areas, but in the ways in which my my identity is marginalized, like, I find myself trying to constantly, you know, be on my toes so that if I do say something, it's like, all right, this is what I hope you take away from it, and hopefully that works toward change, because even if in a room full of, like, 75 people who don't look like me, if only if one person ends up changing their viewpoints or beginning to think a little more critically or if they change like wow I never thought that students of color or people of color had this experience and then they take it to their other friend group who might more likely look like them then that's how change happens like I would love to you know change things in math but definitely in college it was like micro it was baby steps it was a lot of like micro change Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think that one thing that I'm seeing is that not only do you use your voice to tell your own stories and your own perspective, but something that you shared on um, your Instagram profile is that you're telling stories people can tell themselves. So you're not only using your voice for your own self, but also for others, right? Mm-hmm. You I think that, then, yeah, go no, ahead. No, go for it. No, no, you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just really curious about like that that position that you have as a journalist, like telling other people's stories. Like, how do you um, how do you handle the situation where you're like your job is to tell those stories, but also you're not necessarily living that experience? Like, how do you manage this um, this kind of tough situation? Sometimes I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I think the the best way to like tell stories is through people and the there's so much happening in our world where we hear numbers and facts and statistics and all of those things are true but ultimately whenever we're experiencing those things like we're experiencing them as human beings so like a couple of years ago um there was this was right when um like neil gorsuch was appointed to like the supreme court and this was after the 2016 election but a lot of young women were so scared for, you know, their reproductive rights to be rolled away, which is so ironic considering the current state of things. But um, in 2016, there was that legitimate fear already. So um, there, one of the highest searched Google terms of election night was, what is an IUD? How can I get an IUD? How long does an IUD last? And it's because if people would not have access to contraception, at least with a long acting um, reversible contraceptive like uh, an IUD, you would be fine for, you know, five years, 10 years, maybe if you have like a copper IUD. Um, So that was like one story where it was like, that wasn't necessarily a fear of mine at the time, but that goes to show like people were willing to surgically have a procedure that would stop or um, more likely stop contraception. So I think that being able to talk about how current events and all of these policies are like impacting people's lives that's that's what I mean by telling stories that people can't tell themselves and a lot of times people are telling these stories but most of the public isn't listening so by virtue of working with these you know organizations that have these massive platforms and followings being able to say like hey this is not my experience but this is what is going on for you know, these groups of people, this is what life looks like when you present this way in our society. And this is why it matters. And I, I, I really think that so much of it is people not 
people not understanding. And I think some of it might be ignorance, but I think a lot of it truly, or rather willful ignorance um, versus I think some people just are like, huh, well, none of my friends are gay or oh, none of my friends are trans or they, they, people speak with such absolutes about what their worldview looks like that I think the way I like to navigate journalism is to say that, hey, on video, like, let's, let's tell a story about someone who lives life completely different than you. And this is why they are trying to enact change. Or even if it's not enacting change, it's like, here's someone being so transparent to say, this is what, this is what my life looks like at this moment. And this is how I have to deal with it. That really is a learning tool for people. And um, during like the civil rights movement, for instance, like people knew that you know, black people in the South were, were being attacked by, you know, just, you know, the state and they understood that people were being oppressed, but it wasn't really until the media started actively having cameras like on the scenes where people now had visuals to, to see people being hit by fire hoses. They were able to see dogs being sick on individuals, you know, they were able to now experience a reality through their eyeballs. Like, oh my gosh, this is horrific. And then legislation and all these other things were able to to come to pass. So I think that with journalism and how I see it, it's like there are so many ways where other groups are still being oppressed and they still are being, you know, harmed by the powers that be. And if we can just get enough people to see and witness the plight of these individuals, then hopefully, you know, their lives can be changed for the better too. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. And, you know, um, it reminds me like the, the, the power of a story in this digital age, right, where mm-hmm. it's so easy sometimes to manipulate or to only have one narrative dominating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious about like, what is the story or maybe the stories that you're maybe tired of hearing about Haiti and what other stories would you like to, to bring to the forefront? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the kind of stories that I'm really tired of hearing about Haiti are just the ones about, you know, devastation and, and trauma. And the thing is, that very much is a part of the lived reality, political corruption. Like these things ha- are happening within the society. However, I think that, um, I'm not sure what the statistic is, but Haiti is a very young country. Like the vast majority of Haiti, um, you know, it's filled with young people. And I think that young people, we just have so much spark and enthusiasm in life and we really are change makers globally so the stories that aren't like stories aren't focusing on that or another um brand of haiti stories that i hate is like very much like look at these quote-unquote expats who now live in haiti and like this is so fun for them as like white people living in haiti you know and that is just where it's like cool do you think that's what you're doing now but all of the attention given to someone who is, you know, just not a part of the like quote unquote native group. And because of that, it's seen as, you know, this sort of um, narrative of like American exceptionalism where it's like, Hey, I have my own surfboard shop in Haiti. And like, I'm originally from, you know, America. And then I moved here and now I'm living the life eating coconuts. So like that, I think that that's another extreme where it's like these stories about Haiti where it's very much like luxury, but it's not luxury from the point of view of like the Haitian people. And it's very much from like a foreigner who has like come to like live here and like, oh my gosh, it's, it's very like voyeuristic. And the other per, the other side of the spectrum, the other extreme is, you know, the stories about tragedy and famine and this and that and the third. And my my family we went on vacation to to Haiti um last March so in March 2018 and yeah life is hard <laughs> I I will say that like there are definitely moments where I was like taken aback like wow these like my cousins or other people are younger than me and their way of life is so exponentially different than mine as like a mm-hmm. late 20s American um but there's still like this hope, there's still like this vibrance there. So I think that those are the stories that should be told where it's just like, you know, this kid is really great at this, or these people are really trying to use the resources of the land to fight deforestation. And 
these these stories exist. It's just a matter of people finding them and for it to be given the given the light of day to to tell that narrative as opposed to the you know the two extremes that I mentioned before. Mm, yeah, definitely. And that's really interesting because for me, like from my perspective, I've seen the domination of the the first types of stories that you mentioned, like devastation and poverty mm-hmm. and all of that. But I haven't come across yet about those like heroic stories about expats, immigrants from the U.S. Mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. have made a living in Haiti. And I think it's interesting because um, through the Real Island Life movement, the, the goal is really to shift the narrative and to bring a broader narrative to what the island life really means. And it's interesting to me that now in Haiti, there's two narratives that are existing, like the luxury, living my best life, coconut water and thongs, <laughs> and then the, the other one that's like, that's been dominant for, for many years. So I, I wasn't aware of that at all. Yeah, it's, 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 I, I definitely think that if it were to be a percentage, it would still be like 85% stories of trauma and devastation and famine and disease and sickness and just corruption and then the 15 percent like it's a very small percent I've seen I've seen it like a couple of times um just on like different outlets where I was just like huh okay cool like this is like like it's different um but I think that it's never like when I do hear those 15 percent stories I and like positive stories are wonderful and I and I love them but I think it's almost like oh, you know, I just decided to move here because what the heck, <laughs> you know, there, there's like that level of, of like carefree, like, yeah, this is so fun for me. And like, I could leave if I want, but like, why would I? Mm-hmm. Cause it's like so chill here. And I think very stereotypically, if people were to describe like island life, they think of, you know, wind chimes and surfing and <laughs> all, all of those things. I think that that is what some of those stories come across as. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my, an issue is too strong of a term, but I think what I realize about those kinds of stories, it's like, it's never about like, hey, there was like a woman from like a particular village in Haiti who um, she's doing that and she's living her best life and she's um, t- teaching Americans who come on vacation to Haiti how to do these things. And she's an entrepreneur. Like it's never, it's not, it's, I don't see those stories. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that they don't exist, but I, the ones that I've seen have just been a lot of like Americans who have decided like, Hey, I'm going to now like live here and create a business. And that is the story of Haiti versus like some of the Haitian people who live there are and from there originally, like they're doing really extraordinary things, but mm-hmm. we'd never know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that means you have to go and create those stories then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh yes, I would love that. I'll come with you. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious if we can get a little bit more uh, specific about your work, in case we have any listeners that are curious about like what it's like to do journalism, and even if we have some youngsters that want to go into a career like this. <laughs> so. What is the process for you when you go from like, okay, like I have this idea, I want to go tell like this story to having something fully published and out into the world mm-hmm. in a nutshell, because so, I know it's probably complicated, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you the Spark Notes version. So okay. I really love, um, well, I think so much of, so many of my stories come from just like reading other stories or conversations with my friends. Um, just using life as a tool to to ask why, and ultimately journalism is trying to answer that why. And from there, it'll I'll look to see if it's been covered before, um, and if a particular story has received coverage, like what what was missing, like what were the gaps in the narrative that I think the audience would want to know and that I would want to know if I were the viewer. Um, so I think maybe it's a little selfish of me, but <laughs> the journalism that I'm making, is like a lot of like, what would I want to see? What would I think is important enough to like share on my own personal Facebook page? You know? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then from there, there's like lots of conversation with like the bosses and, you know, the, the higher ups upstairs saying, hey, 
um, I would like, and, and, and it's a formal pitch process where this is a story I want to do. Um, these are the individuals that I would like to reach out to if I were to tell this story. This is why it matters. And if there's like a particular news peg to it where it's like, I want to tell this story and I would love for it to come out in the next two weeks because two weeks from now is Pride, for instance, in the month of June. And um, in the month of June, I really want us to focus on LGBTQIA plus stories. So I think there, there, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot to do in general, but like pre, in terms of like pre-production, like I always want to make sure that if someone were to ask me a question, like what, how many cameras would it take to do this story? How many, how many days would you need? Um, what's the budget for the story? Like I would want to have those answers ahead of time. And um, after I, the pitch gets greenlit, then that's when I would formally reach out to someone and finding their email account, trying to reach out to them on any means necessary. Like I've like definitely like slid into Twitter DMs where I'm like, hi, I'm a journalist and I would love to talk to you. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and then just getting those interviews set and then, you know, filming a whole bunch, way more than would actually end up in like the final product. But you always, you know, start big and then you bring it down to size after all of the filming would get done, that's when I would start scripting the story. And depending on how the type of story that it's done, where if I'm on camera for the stories, then sometimes it's, you'll have to film out in the field what it is that you're going to say so that it's on camera. Other times you can write what you're going to say after the fact and just record it in the audio booth and then lay it underneath. Um, or if it's like more of a single person story or um, an individual or, or more character based, then you, you're kind of trying to create the story based on the different parts of the interview. So um, recently, um, ahead of Mother's Day, I told this one story about this um, Brooklyn based doula service and they teach other women in their community how to become doulas and assist with um, you know, the birthing process and they offer physical and emotional support to, to pregnant individuals. And I thought that it was so beautiful. And especially in light of like the black maternal mortality rate, like there, there were all of those things where it's just like news peg of health, news, um, news peg of Mother's Day that I wanted to, to tell this story. And we spoke with the woman who um, is the CEO and the founder of the organization. And, the, you know, sometimes you get really lucky that people just naturally have a beautiful voice and their tone and the way in which this woman spoke is almost like poetry. Um, so it, it, it made it very easy for me to be like, okay, we're going to have this part and then this part and then that part. <laughs> um, and then after the scripting process, there's even more like back and forth. It's a very collaborative process with, um, you know, the senior video producers, they send you notes like, I don't like this top of the piece, let's rearrange it. I don't like music. I don't like the site. Um, and there's a phrase that I think is so funny, but it's called kill your darlings, where um, sometimes there are piece, parts of your, your story that will not actually make it in to the final product. And it's because you have to like kill your darlings. And that always like breaks my heart because I'm like, no, it's so good. Mm. Um, but then they're like, Jessica, we have a 23 minute video and this is way too long yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then after the, you know, back and forth, finally, there will be like a point where it's like, okay, this is how the story will go out into the world. And um, we, we have like a system where we create the like video text that you would see while you're watching it. So it would be like, you know, this doula, this Brooklyn based doula service is providing black mothers with, um, yeah, black pregnant mothers with the care and love that they so desperately need, you know? So it's like, you have mm -hmm. to, as you're writing, think like, okay, what would make me want to click on this story? Especially because um, everyone and their mom literally is going to be sharing Mother's Day content. Like what makes this stand out? Mm -hmm. and, you know, what makes it stand out? It's like the black maternal mortality rate. The fact that these women are working to become doulas in a society where the medicalization of childbirth is a very real thing, you know? So um, yeah, it, that, it's, it, it's quite a process, but it, it's beautiful. Like by the time you actually see your work out there and you see the comments that people are making, some good, some bad sometimes. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But just being able to like have that sigh of relief of, you know, I told this story in in a way that I think matters. And that mm -hmm. um, I, I, I also like one of my favorite things about this whole process is then reaching out to the person who 
I spoke with in the first place to say, hey, um, I just want to thank you again for allowing me to speak with you and here is the final product. And that reaction of like, oh, wow, because, you know, you, you just essentially you spend so much time with people and there are so many different moving parts. It seems hard to see how all of it will be streamlined into one you know um one cohesive story so when they do see it and they that response of oh my gosh it's so beautiful and i'm now i'm going to share it with everyone and wow mm-hmm. this really made me tear up and yeah just hearing how they have interpreted my work um that that means a lot to me yeah that must be so beautiful i love that oh. <sighs> You have such a fun job. I love it. <laughs> it. It is. I will say that. Like, I'm I'm very, very lucky that I get to, like, tell stories for a living. Yeah. One thing that you, you brought up um, several times is, like, this, um, the the judgment that comes also with, with this career. Like, you you might get your, your superiors to, like, judge your work and be like, actually, I don't like that when you, like, love that part or even the fact that you're often on camera, like how do you deal with the insecurities that might come up in those situations? Yeah, I think it's definitely like, it's hard. I think like people have to develop a thick skin because, you know, work is one thing where, you know, I don't like this part, edit that part out, this part is too long. But then when it's kind of, your humanity is what is on camera, like the one that's what's front facing, like that is kind of where you have to decide, like that's where the pavement meets the road kind of thing. I think that's the expression where you have to decide like, is this what I want to do? Because like people can be really vicious and um, I like recently cut my hair off. So I'm like rocking the Wakanda forever <laughs> kind of fade. Yeah, um, and you look so good. <laughs> oh, I thank you. <laughs> um, and, and I love it. And I've received such positive, um, you know, feedback from it. But this last week was when we, we filmed something, actually. That's the second time that I've, like, appeared on camera with my hair this way. So they're in comparison to, like, when I had, like, you know, long, straight wigs and weaves before. Um, so I think that when you have to decide, like, do I really want to be the focus of you know people's judgment because everyone and their mom like has an opinion where it's just like that haircut is terrible or and like I haven't and granted I also and in terms of like self-care I never read the comments like positive or otherwise like I never like once a video is up I will like send the people the links and if I do ever watch it again like I there there's nothing positive for me in the comments even if people are like oh my god such a great fade <laughs> or, or something like I just I think that that would like I don't I don't see what benefit that would give me um, especially if it's like ultimately if I'm proud of the work that I do and if I'm proud of you know how I look and mm-hmm. especially with my hair being this short like I I think there's beauty in that where young black girls with short hair can like watch something and they're like wow someone who looks like me is able to do this and exude confidence and be on camera mm-hmm. um and like those are the kinds of things that I hope people get from my mere presence but if they don't then I I really don't need to like know what racist brandy from whatever state is like trolling in the comments like that that wouldn't help me um mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I love that and um, I think you gave some really good actionable like tips and tricks for people that might go into a career um, where the attention right is so much on you and mm-hmm. your creation or your your physical appearance. Right. Like, yeah. do you have any other tips for someone that might want to pursue a career like yours? I think some of the biggest tips would be find find a mentor. So, and and I think that that's such it kind of seems corny where people are like, yeah, 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 find a mentor, but truly like find someone who is either in a position where you would want to be um, someone who has connections and not just for the sake of like hitting people up to be like, Hey, here's my resume. Can you help me get a job? But truly like journalism, I feel like it is a very small space. Like I, I can go somewhere and meet someone and then they're like, Oh, do you know this person? Do you know that person? Like it is very interconnected. So in that same way where you would want 
to receive help from someone, I think that it's important to also be a helping hand to another, where if, you know, there's some college student who's like, hey, I don't really know what to do, um, making yourself accessible, like making your story, making, um, making time for people, because especially in journalism, like it's very, um, it's a very white space. It is a very male, uh, like cisgender, straight white male space. Um, so even though I have like the privilege of like working with the roots, and that has a very specific clientele and audience, media as a whole does not look like my job. So being able to, you know, seek help and wanting to find someone is important, but also like being that help for someone else. So I think it's like two sides of the same coin. Like the, I think that that is some very good, like actionable advice that I would, you know, put forth to someone. And also just like, I don't know, I think like giving it a shot, like what's the, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, if someone wants to like for, for every no, there is also a yes. Like, there yes. are ways where we'll pitch stories and we'll have so many ideas and it's like this person is the person and if the what happens if they say no to you if the story is really worth chasing you will definitely be able to like find someone else who could speak to that same point and bring drive that same you know story home that you really want to get across so i think that it takes a lot of like perseverance definitely takes a tough skin so um I'm telling, I'm, it's not like, you know, definitely don't read the comments, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that, I think those are, those are some, some tips that people should, should take if they're interested in this career. I love it. Thank you for that. And I think that's something that you can apply to a lot of different industries as well. So mm-hmm. super useful. Um, okay. So before we wrap up, I want us to move into the rapid fire rounds. Um, yeah, let's do it. So, yes, let's do it. These are my favorite questions often. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then we try to keep it, we keep it short, but still. All right. Are you ready? Whew, okay. As ready as I'm going to be. All right. <laughs> So what's one thing you want people to understand about IT? Mm. I want people to understand that, ooh, that's a great question. Like, I think all immigrants work hard. And maybe it's because, like, obviously I'm, like, repping for my affiliations. But it's, like, I feel like there's a degree of, like, unbreakability of, like, the Haitian spirit. And it's definitely been cultivated through hard times um but i think that that's what i love most about being haitian like the ability where i know that the going gets tough well it's or it's like you know when the, the phrase is like when the tough get when the going gets tough the tough get going it's like mm-hmm. haitians are more than tough <laughs> so that's that's what i want people to know <laughs> mm, yes yeah, so good um and what's one thing that you've learned from your parents or elders in your family mm. Something that I've learned from my parents and the elders in my family is to make the most out of any situation. So when my parents like came to America, like they started going, they went to school when they were adults. Um, So then they got their associates, their bachelors, their masters. And my sisters and I were like in elementary school, middle school, like when this was happening. And they're always like, you know, if I can do it, you can do it. And the fact that my parents had, you know, four kids, the fact that they had to go to work, they, they, there were so many things that they still had to do, but they always prioritized education and making sure that that was a priority for them. Like that is, that, that's like one of those like fundamentals for me that, you know, education is paramount. And especially in a country like America, where there are so many um, ways in which we are unequal. Like, I would like to think that to some degree, education is like the great equalizer. Like, there are so many, so many things that are like messed up with it. And, you know, especially with all those, you know, famous celebrities and them paying for their kids essentially to like get into school. Like, that is a way where education has been like monopolized um, for the rich and the privileged. But at the same time, like, the the fact that my parents instilled in us at a very very young age like that was the vehicle towards success like in America where there are already ways where things are going to be harder for us by where we come from how we look like all of those things so if we at least have education then that is like a tool 
that I will be able to use to like better myself and, you know, whoever else comes along in the future. Yeah, so good. That, these are some great values for sure. <laughs> hmm. I want to meet your parents. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're great. I will say like they're, they definitely were like uptight growing up. Cause I feel like, oh, like the, um, there's like the, the one comedian Hassan Minaj where a, I love him, but he, he's, um, his parents are from India and he was saying that so many immigrant parents, like they, they come here and they, they, I don't, they don't know any other way to be other than like, I'm going to hold you so tight because America is terrifying. Cause like when you watch TV, you know, when you see teens drinking and they get into car accidents and prom night, like that is what, like parents watch the stuff that comes on television and the media is telling them that like teenagers are crazy. They're this, that, the third. So you can't do anything because your, your immigrant parents are like, you trying to do what now? No. <laughs> so I think that my parents, like now that we're adults, like they, they're, I can say that they're like cool people. But when I was younger, I was just like, oh, you never let me do anything. Like everything was <laughs> like, it was such a big deal for me. Yeah. Um, but now that I'm older and I kind of have like the hindsight, it's like, well, they were trying to do the best that they could um, for you in a place where, you know, this is, this is our first foray into, you know, American society. And they're just trying to set you up for success, how they see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's by being strict. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. They were doing the best that they can. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where is your favorite spot in Haiti? Ooh, I think one place that I really liked um, what we went was the Citadel. So it's essentially like this giant castle. Um, and our tour guide was telling us that um, back in, you know, the days of like the pirates and everything that was happening within um the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, um, anytime there was like a, like attack on Haiti, then this is where people would have to come because it's like facing the water. And it's so big and it was so windy up there. Um, but just to think that like people had, there, there were, and to this day, there's still like giant piles of like cannonballs and cannons and, um, just like the the living history of that area where it's just like Haiti and Haitians, like they've been about that life <laughs> like for so long. Um, that just like seeing that, like it's not where like my family is from and we have to like travel to get there. But, um, but like seeing uh, w- when we were there and like that same story of like strength and triumph was like being told there were elementary school kids who were like on field trips there in their uniforms, like the little Haitian kids. And then there were also like a lot of American tourists there. There were tourists from other countries. Like the fact that we all are being, you know, informed about the history of Haiti um, in a way that reflects its dynamism. Like mm-hmm. I, I was like, this is, this is, this is the, the stuff that I would want to hear about. So definitely. Yeah. The yeah. I want to go there. Sounds Girl, like a powerful place. It's fun. <laughs> um okay let's talk about my favorite subject what is your favorite dish from Haiti oh okay so there's this um it's called like um Dijonjon avec noir so um Dijonjon is like mushroom rice so it's this black rice with like green peas in it and it is so good um and uh Pouldi is hen and where my family's from, like in Okap, like my grandma, like makes this dish. Um, so it's like Dijonjon with like Pouldi and Noir. So it's like cashews and in a sauce with the hen and the, the rice girl. I'm like getting so hungry just talking about it. <laughs> Me um, too. And I don't even eat chicken, so. but I'll, it sounds good. <laughs> right, exactly. You're like, I'm a vegetarian and definitely sounds great. No, it, it's so good. Like every time I go home, like um, to like visit my grandma's, just like oh, like what you said, you pull it out. I was like, oh my god, stop! Like she's like, I made food for you. Um, and then my parents will try to like pack it so that I can put it into my my like carry on. So CSA is always just like, ma'am, what's in your bag? And I was like, oh lord. And I would have to open it. It's just a whole bunch of like Haitian food that I'm taking back to New York with me. 
<laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so good. Can they ship it? I feel like that would. They been could good. ship it like overnight. They could. It's funny overnight. because when I was at Hamilton, my they did that like freshman year for like a couple of times just because I was like. I'm so cold, I'm so hungry, I'm so sad. <laughs> and like I didn't know that people didn't eat rice every day until college where I was just like I think I don't know when it was. Maybe it was like October and school starts like mid-August and I and Commons like the dining hall had not served rice yet and I was pissed. I was like, "Yo, what am I going to eat some rice?" And then <laughs> and then they shipped me food. Because I was just like, so they like, they froze it and then they shipped it within like 24 hours. And then I went to the mail center uh, and they were like, oh, you have a packet. And it was literally just like filled with uh, like rice and just like all of like this frozen Haitian food. Because I was like, huh, I can't, I can't eat hot dogs and burgers every day. Oh my god, I'm picturing this so easily because I know the campus. This is so oh, yeah. funny to me. Oh Girl, I was god. I was pissed. I was I don't know. I was I was just a mess freshman year. And then and then afterwards my, my family was like, Okay, yeah, we you need to deal with all of this food that's on campus and eat it. So then it was like less of them like shipping me food. So yeah. <laughs> But I think that reminds me a bit of Terry too. I think he used to have food shipped too from from Miami. Oh my god! <laughs> Shout out to Terry if you're listening, Terry. <laughs> oh god! All right, let's bring it back. Um, I love talking about food. I could talk about food all day. Uh, who's your favorite Haitian artist? Ooh, good question. Um. Hmm. So the funny thing is like their song is like playing in my head, but I can't remember their name. But like the song, it's it's they're saying like Kite yo pale, which is just like, you know, let the let the busy bodies talk or whatever, or like let the haters talk. Oh my gosh. I feel like I kinda wanna Google it. Give me one second. I'm gonna find the name. <laughs> okay, girl. <laughs> no, I like it uh, I knew this question was coming too, and I'm just like, darn it. Okay. This song is by oh yeah, Michelle Matelli. Yeah. There you go. Oh, sweet Mickey. There you go. Sweet Mickey. <laughs> sweet Mickey. Okay, I'm gonna add it I to like the episode. Yeah. I love that song. Yeah, put it on put on your playlist. <laughs> so good. Sweet Mickey. And what's the name of the song? Kite yo pale. Kite yo pale. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yes, girl. Okay, okay. I got my new playlist going on. <laughs> um, okay, can you name three Islanders that you look up to? Ooh, three Islanders that I look up to. Hmm. From Haiti specifically, right? It doesn't have to be. Islanders in general. Okay, Islanders in general. Honestly, I feel like I would be remiss if I do not mention uh, the baddest girl in the game, Rihanna. Rihanna's just amazing. I just, yes, ugh, she's so, she's a businesswoman. She's beautiful. She's smart. Um, I, to this day, have, like, so much, like, shame that I do not own any, like, Fenty Beauty products yet, but I need, I need someone for, like, a belated birthday gift to, like, buy me some Fenty. Um, so Rihanna, for sure, um, I would also say another Islander who I look up to, the Cindy Corny, but like my sisters are just like, and I count them as one, but I've got three sisters, but I'll count them as one unit. <laughs> okay. um, they, they're just they're, like, all of my sisters are just so excellent. Like they are smart and hardworking, like truly the smartest people that I know. So whenever anyone's like, oh my God, Jessica, you're so smart. In my mind, I'm thinking like, you don't even like, that's not even like the tip of the iceberg because like I think that my sisters are just so brilliant um so definitely Rihanna number one my sisters at number two (laughs) and then number three I would say that an islander who I look up to would be hmm in my mind I'm trying to think I'm like are there any men that I look up to (laughs) 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 oh right And, and in my mind I'm like Probably, but like right now, I'm definitely like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just like, oh, I don't know. Um, 
But I would say um, Edwidge Danticat, so she, so the all women. <laughs> um, so she is an author, um, and she has a book called, well, she's written a lot of books, um, but she focuses a lot on, like, Haiti and Haitian identity. And she has one book called, like, Kikka, uh, um, which I read, I think, like, back in college for, like, the first time. Um, but she's just, she writes incredibly well, beautifully. Um, and there are so many stories that are, like, being told. Um, and, I, and I think that this is a very interesting time as well, just in terms of, like, people really um, celebrating their cultural identities and as a result, writing books from that experience. Um, so the fact that we now have, you know, Haitian Americans and Haitians who are also occupying that space where they're saying, hey, Western world, hey, you know, greater society, you know, here's something that you should read um, about where I come from and what my people do and these customs and what my culture is like. I, I love that because um, I think sometimes even within like the Caribbean, like we, 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 like we know each other, like we know the beauty and the diversity of um, our experiences and what those stories look like. But when other people who might be from truly, you know, um, middle America, they might not even know any people of color, but by virtue of being able to like go to a library, pick up a book and read and be transported to, you know, this little, island nation <laughs> um, in the middle of the Caribbean and like know what that story is like and have a glimpse of what that experience is like. I, I think that that's so beautiful. So those, those are my three, those are my three ladies. Mm. It for the ladies. <laughs> yes. The power of five. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yes. 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 You asked for three. I gave you five. <laughs> I love that. So good. So good. Um, huh. If you could describe Haiti in three words, what would they be? Haiti is strong. Haiti is beautiful. And Haiti is proud, for sure. Mm, yes, such a powerful <laughs> combination. Um, and then we have two more to go. What is your... Yeah biggest hope for the island and its community? Mm. My biggest hope for Haiti is to really like have the people live in a way where they're like that they th that they're able to whatever they envision for themselves that they can achieve it you know where it's like the older I get in America it's like you know I'm when I was a little kid like truly I felt like I could like do anything and I think that little kids everywhere have that you know inner spark but then the older we get we start to think about the realities of the world that we live in and the opportunities that are afforded to us so what I really want for Haiti is for you know people especially little girls to just you know feel like they can do anything like they can become a doctor that they can change the world that they can enter politics that they can change their country from within um, so that's definitely one thing that I want for Haiti. I also want, I want there to be like less, and maybe this is just like a global thing, <laughs> where it's just like the, the divide between like the haves and the have-nots is so stark that I would want, you know, truly people to, 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 to feel like they, they have everything that they need, you know, like maybe they have a little more than that, but for people to feel like at least their basic needs are being met. Like, I feel like that is such, that should be such a universal and people baseline should be able to have those things. But I think in the case of some, that's definitely not the case. So those are my, those are my two wishes for, for hate. Mm -hmm. Yes. I wish for that too. Um, and then lastly, what does the island life mean to you? Ooh, I think the, the island life to me means the hustle. Like there, I think these islanders are such hustlers. Like you, like Haitian old ladies will like finesse you into like, you know, giving them a cup of water, marrying their son, like <laughs> like anything that they want. Like they will finesse and hustle. And like there's that, you know, constantly like being on the move. Um, where people don't want to like rest on their laurels. Like people want to do better for 
their family's sake, for their community's sake. Like there's this level of, you know, constant vision, thinking of the future and what you can do to like actively work toward that. And I think that that's what the island life is. Like people from the islands, like we definitely um, embody that spirit of just like never giving up, like keep like onto the next one, like <laughs> like just playing that over and over and over. That is that that's the island life. Yes. Ah, oh, so good. So so good, <laughs> Jessica. I am so happy and grateful for your presence today, and I thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Share so much about your passions, your vision, and, and your beautiful island of IT. And yeah, I, I'm so excited uh, for everyone to hear this episode. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, a, a little a little Hamilton Black Girl magic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening to The Real Island Live Show. To review what we talked about on today's episode and enter this week's giveaway, Check out the show notes down below or head to realisland.life. And before we head out, I have a fun surprise for you. Did you know that outside of this podcast, I also run a marketing agency that supports island businesses? Yes, that's right. So if you're an island business owner struggling with social media or anything related to digital marketing, I'm happy to let you know that I'm gifting you with a free consultation so that me and my team at the Global Island Girl Agency can help you find solutions to your challenges and come up with strategies to generate more money for your business while also scaling up your impact. To grab this offer, head to realisland.life slash free call and schedule a time that works for you. Again, that's realisland.life slash free call. I'm so excited to support you. And until then, I'll see you on the next episode.